You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile's heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 29, December 29th, 2016. Today on our show, we have Dave Pryor. Dave is a certified Scrum trainer and Agile coach. He's worked in senior management for numerous firms, including Project Wizards, and is currently a consultant for Leading Agile. His list of volunteer activities for the Agile community is long and distinguished, including speaking at many events, facilitating workshops and retreats for coaches and trainers, and serving on the Trainer Acceptance Committee for Scrum Alliance. Dave has been an avid blogger and podcaster for many years. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've been in the industry for many years as a traditional project manager and program manager. And in fact, you've been deeply involved as a PMI volunteer as well. Talk about your journey of adopting a more agile mindset. Uh, let's see. In 1999, I was working at a bunch of dot-coms in New York and I had my first Agile project and it was a total disaster. Um, not because of Agile, but because the transition process uh, involved the CTO throwing a copy of Extreme Programming Explained on the floor and telling us to read it because we were Agile on Monday. Um, and so when that didn't go very well, I didn't want anything to do with Agile. And I did get pretty deep in, into the PMI stuff and I taught PMP certification for a while too. Um, Eventually, I ended up in a situation where I had to do, there wasn't really any other option. Like everyone was doing Scrum, I had to learn about it. And I went off and I took a class that Mike Cohn taught. And in the class, when I introduced myself as a PMP, they booed me. And then when I referred to people as resources, they booed me again. And then when I told them I fixed their estimates, they threw things at me, and I was really upset about it. So uh, in t- 2008, I think, it, and this was and this was just your training, right? It wasn't. I was a student. I was just the only. Everyone else was a developer except for me in the room. Um, so I I was really upset about that. And at the time, I was the chair of the IT and telecom SIG and PMI. And so I got myself invited to the Scrum gathering in Chicago, and I think it was 2008. And in the open space, I went out into the middle of the floor and I said, I'm Dave, I'm here from PMI. I want to know why you guys hate us so much. And I want to know what I can do to fix it. And so like five people came uh, to that open space session that I led. And it was awesome because I met the people that I needed to meet to start doing stuff within the PMI community to help. What I wanted to do was expose Agile to the project management side of the house so that they would be less scared of it. And I wanted them to learn not to do things like I did in my class when I called people resources and stuff like that. So um, since since then, I have, I mean, all I do is, all the work I do is Agile. It has been for a while. Um, but the focus of what I do and sort of my driving mission is to make that Agile transition suck less for other people than it did for me. So that's why I'm a CST. Um, and any any moment I have where I get to help another 
poor soul stuck in the waterfall to find their way out with less discomfort and pain than I did is a big win. So talk about that a little bit more. What was what were some key pain points or what was really str- a struggle for you? I, I think you spend so much, if you're a PMP, you spend so much time studying that stuff. And I had spent years, I mean, I also have a master's degree in project management. So I was, I'm deep with the waterfall. And I love that stuff, even though it doesn't work for me. Um, it, it's really hard to let go of all those things that you've spent all that time learning. And I used to, to in my classes, I used to say that my job is to scoop all the waterfall out. And I was talking to another CST, Dr. Shalyan Freudenberg, one time. Um, and and I, I said that to her, and she said in her English accent, which always makes her sound incredibly smart, she said, you know, Dave, when they rescue people from cults, they can't scoop what the cult put in back out. You have to just overflow it with new information. So now that's my job. I don't try to – it helped me a lot because I realized that once – when you're a project manager and you learn to think like that with work breakdown structure and all that, you can't unlearn it. It's it's that's not going to leave me any more than being like a dysfunctional Irish Catholic from Philadelphia is. That's just burned into your soul. So, what I have to do is kind of come to terms with the fact that I am a project manager who works in agile. So I've always got to wait a couple seconds for the filters to click in before I start talking. That totally resonates with me as well because I come from a very hardcore you know, uh, command and control PM style background. And, um, I'm also a PMP and you hear constantly from people in the agile community. Oh, you know, I've always been agile and blah, blah, blah. And and then there's those of us that have made the transition and it hasn't been easy over these years. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not one of those people. I know people that say that too, like, Oh, I've been doing this forever. I'm like, no, I was dragged kicking and screaming into it. I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, and it was only when I couldn't avoid it anymore that that I started to see. And so I still have too much work to do and I'm still stressed out, but it's my own fault when I'm that way. And I find that I am much, much happier and the work I do is more creative. And I'm surrounded by people that are more fun to be around because they like working the way they work. So um, it has been a, a wonderful life-changing experience for me. And I, and I really love getting the chance to help other people just learn a better way to work. I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're agile or not. It matters if you can treat people like human beings and deliver value for your customers. But um, given the choice, I would much rather work with people that want to work the way they're working. Yeah, and, and Dave, my my journey is actually very similar. I was literally carried kicking and screaming. Uh, we won't get into it, but my transformation from waterfall to agile, I'm a PMP as well. And my transition from waterfall to agile literally involved like a broken body part and things like that. Like, <laughs> it's a longer story. We're here to talk about you, not that. Um, maybe one day Daniel can interview me, interview me and I'll tell that story. However, um, I consider myself lucky because that was about 1999, 2000. And I, I kind of fell into agile um, and I, I didn't have the opportunity to, to, to put up much resistance. And um, I think you were very pragmatic by going to Chicago and going to the open space and asking, why do you hate me and how can I do this? And so from that experience, what's like the top maybe key takeaway or key pieces of advice you can give to someone going through that right now? Um, I think on the one hand, I think it's really important if you're coming from the waterfall side to not try to match the two things up. I know that a lot of people try to do that. I don't think they match up. Other than taking a story and breaking it down into tasks, I mean, the similarities between that and work breakdown structure, they're, to me, they're like opposite things. Not opposites, but they're maybe parallels. They don't, 
you can't say that one role becomes another role or one type of behavior becomes another type of behavior. That was a really big, big hard lesson for me to get used to. And the other thing that happened um, at that actual scrum gathering in 2008, I walked into a session just by accident and Dan Rosthorn was talking about earned value management and scrum. And that just being able to take something I was familiar with and it, and it, it like opened a door for me. Um, so finding something that will let Agile become more accessible to you, I think is a big deal and not trying to turn Agile into the stuff you already know is also a big deal. Along those same lines, what are some of the key influences on you besides what you just mentioned that, that has, um, you know, affected your Agile thinking and, and currently your training style? Um, music is a really big deal. Um, I used to work in the music business and, um, there's things that I've learned there and things I've learned from playing in bands that directly tie into it. So it's, I think anybody who's played in a band and gone through the stages of being like a really crappy band that just makes noise to, to this point when you're on stage and you don't have to talk cause you just know, um, that's what a good team is like. So I think that there's a lot of parallels there. Um, and a lot of the stuff that I study about meditation and things like that and, and l- not being attached to things it also becomes very important. Um, I think those are probably the two main things. Do you see kind of a crossover or a correlation between, you know, the creative side of music and, and maybe influences into Agile? I would imagine there probably is. I guess I tend to think of it more in terms of the interaction between the people um, and the way that they respond to one another and the way that they learn to communicate. Um, there's a lot of people in, in our field that come out of the music business. They've either played in bands or they worked in labels or things like that. That's a big deal. Um, and I also, I, for a while when I was in the business, I worked for, for Clive Davis, the president of what was Arista Records, and I was his nighttime assistant. Um, and in the two years that I worked for him, um, I learned more by watch, more about how to interact with people just by watching him than I learned from my entire MBA program. So he has, I mean, he's obviously a very powerful man and, and would get demo tapes from very famous people and have to send them letters that said like, you know, hey, thanks, but this isn't really what we need. And the way that he would interact with them and the way that he would protect their egos and their creative sensibilities, um, there's a lot that I've been able to draw on from that in interacting with people on teams and trying to be constructive with feedback and make them feel good about stuff. But also, I think a big part of being a coach or being a scrum master is social engineering. So I study that stuff a lot too. Um, and, and a lot of what I picked up from Clive has fed into the way that I approach that. And you have a a passion around researching and promoting tools specifically from Apple around project management. Um, and I, I always make the argument that, um, you know, the world's most used project management tool is Excel, uh, not necessarily an Apple product. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I would I would fall to my knees and beg every project manager to delete Excel from their computer. I, I tend to I tend to agree, but I said Microsoft could give Windows away for free if they just charge for Excel um, or double the price. So that said, um, you know, talk a little bit about that passion. Okay, I ended up uh, I, I kind of I learned to program in, in grade school um, on a Mac, and I used Macs for a while, and then at some point I ended up. 
at a company that was a Microsoft Gold partner, and they wouldn't let me use a Mac. So they kept, and I ran the PMO, and I'm doing all this project management work, and they wanted me to use Microsoft Project, and I just hated it. So I'd bring my Mac, and I'd have to keep it hidden in my drawer, and I would take it out and do all my work in there. Um, and it, it still, I kept having to use Project, but there weren't any very robust project management tools. And I was doing things like calling up, I remember I called up Fast Track. Um, like once a year and I'd be like, can you please just put these two things in your tools? Because if you put these two things in, then I can stop using Microsoft completely. Um, and they would never do it. And then I found just by accident and I found Merlin, which is the, the project wizards tool. And they had the two things in there and th that would just, I was so excited that I wrote the owner a thank you letter. Um, and we became friends. And after a number of years, I ended up working them for them for a while. So, um, I am more comfortable on a Mac, and I love working that way. And I also love working with project management tools. I just need them to have certain things that a lot of project management tools kind of gloss over. So having one that was built by project managers who understand how the job works, who understands that work and duration are not the same thing, um, that was, I, I mean, little, like happy dance. So I was really excited to spend time teaching people how to use Merlin and helping them get better at project management. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And I, what are some of the um, – you, you mentioned that the project management tools tend to gloss over some of those features. What are some of the things that have been glossed over in case some of those vendors are listening to this podcast? The biggest one for me was, was separate values for work and duration. Um, that was sort of like the final thing that, that only – the only Mac option for that was Merlin. Um, if I'm going to the movies, it might take me 15 minutes to drive to the theater, an hour and a half to watch the movie, and 15 minutes to drive back. So the hour and a half that I'm watching the movie, that's like the work. The duration is the two hours it takes to go to the theater and get back. And one of the problems with a lot of project management tools is that they have them bound. So if you change one, it automatically changes the other. And I really need, from a scheduling perspective, the ability to say, you know, Daniel's going to do two hours of work and it's going to take eight hours to get it done. Um, not because Daniel's particularly slow, but just because <laughs> that, because if I'm scheduling, if I'm trying to schedule the work that a lot of people are doing, I needed that flexibility. Um, another thing that they added that I thought was really awesome on the project management side, and this kind of goes back to the agile thing. Um, one of the things that I learned from Scrum was to not ask what percent done or how much have you done. I started asking, how much do you have left to do? Like knowing what you know now, how much is left? And Merlin had that built in too, which I thought was amazing. Because if you're trying to track how you're progressing towards a completed state, entering updates that say how much is left is a lot more valuable to me than knowing what percent, you know, does this person think they're done? Because that, that doesn't always correspond to how much longer it's going to take. So I thought that was a pretty powerful thing too. That's great information, Dave, because I know there's a lot of people that are, you know, sort of searching for the right tool. And there's so many out there these days that it's it's tough to find something that, that really, you know, gets the job done. Can I say one thing? Yeah, what? Please stop using Basecamp for project management. <laughs> <laughs> it's an awesome tool, but it's not a project management tool. I guess we can't have them as a sponsor for the show now. It's a collaboration tool. It's not a project management tool. Like, and in the digital project management space, that's a very popular tool. And all these people are being taught that that's a project management tool. And that's, 
it does them a great disservice because if they progress in their careers, they're, they're not going to, I mean, you put them in front of Microsoft project, they're going to be like, what the hell is this? And I have a fundamental issue of using tools improperly. I'm not like a Nazi about, no, 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 you must use the tool exactly how it was designed. But my business partner likes to start a tool. He just throws all the shit in there and then he uses the tool improperly and then wants to use a new tool. And it's just very frustrating. So because he's not using it for maybe its intention. So like use Basecamp for what it was designed for, not for what you think it's for. Right. Exactly. So Dave, you do a lot of training courses like CSM and CSPO. What are some key sources that you use to draw from in terms of influence on your training style? So I think the, the I'm going to answer it kind of backwards. I think the biggest influence was figuring out what not to do. Um, or not wh- how not to be. I used to work for a guy who was very much the sort of walk into the room and I'm here to help you become this thing and you have to listen to me and I am, and he, you know, big guy, big voice, take up a lot of physical space. And I tried to do that and I sucked at it because that's not who I am. So a big thing for me with how I approach my work and how I approach my teaching was to just accept the fact that I'm kind of an idiot and um, I say inappropriate things and I lean up against stuff a lot. And I'm kind of sloppy sometimes and that's just me. So that bringing that into the class and just letting myself relax and just try to, to go through this stuff is a big part of it. But the other thing that I always try to help come across with is that even though I may be the person teaching folks about Scrum, I'm still learning it too. So I'm I'm in the same boat they are. I'm just a little further along with it. And I always want to try to create um, an environment that makes it feel like we're doing this together. And it's not like me imparting my grand knowledge, but me struggling with the same stuff you're struggling with. Um, so a lot of the stories that I tell are like that. Um, another thing I've noticed with a lot of trainers when I talk to them about it, we tend to talk about things as bits the same way comedians do. I mean, not that we're funny like comedians, but you have this bit that you do when you get to this topic and this other bit that you do when you get to that topic. Um, and it, it, that was really interesting to me because I had thought of it that way and I heard a lot of other people also refer to their work that way. So it's like routines. And I think it's important to also mix them up and change them around. And um, every time I teach a class, I change a couple of things to make myself uncomfortable enough so that it's something new. Um, they're going to be uncomfortable. I think I should too. So it's always experimental. So can, can you refer to some books or maybe some uh, other training type trainers that you've looked to for influence? And I'm ashamed to say this, but I don't think that I have. Um, I've tried to watch, actually, I try to watch a lot of comedians for timing stuff because I think that's important. I guess actually, no, two trainers that I think are super amazing that I love to watch are Ron and Chet. Um, but it's because of the comedic timing. It's the way that they play off of one another and finish each other's stories. Um, it doesn't even matter to me what they're saying. I just think they're spectacular to, to, to get to, to see do their thing. Um, Weisbart, also amazing to watch. Um, but I don't, I don't have books that I've read that I've turned to um, or anything like that. I've been teaching a really long time because every place I've ever been, I knew more about project management than anybody else. So I probably started teaching in, God, like 1998. So I've been at it for a while. So a lot of it's hard knocks. I think, you know, I've, I've failed grandly in front of lots of people and, and been caught in 
that thing where they ask you a question and you try to make up an answer. Um, being open to completely just losing it in front of people is important. Um, but I don't think that that's an experience you can get out of a book. I think I was talking to Woody Zool. I interviewed him the other day, and he said that the first time he got up on stage, he completely tanked in front of 3,000 people. And after you do something like that, it doesn't really matter because how much worse can it get? You know? So I think, I think going through the experiences of grand failure, like the first time I got up to teach a PMP class, they had to pull me down. Like the, the, the owner of the company had to say, come stop. And, and they sent somebody else in because I just wasn't capable of doing it. And that was soul crushing um, and really horrible. And I learned a lot about preparation. Um, it just, it, it takes doing it enough to get past the fact that you're delivering information. And I think if you're a trainer, you have to approach it. Um, when I talked to Giora Moran about it, he says it, it's entertainment. And that is what we're doing. We're trying to provide entertainment while we share information. So I totally can relate to that because uh, as a trainer myself, you know, there's a certain amount of pre- preparation you can do for your class. Um, but then you kind of need to be ready for just anything that happens. And so there's a certain element of improv that's, that's helpful and useful. And also I, I can relate to the whole idea of, of failing big. Um, because I, I used to have this huge fear of, of speaking in public. Um, and so what do I do? I volunteer to be the chair of the scrum gathering in Las Vegas. But that's the best thing to do. That's what Woody said that he did the same thing. He volunteered for every speaking engagement he could find. Exactly. I think that's awesome because you, you learn, it's like getting beat up over and over again. After a while, I just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. It really kind of plays to your strengths, meaning is the experimentation. So going and volunteering for things that are outside of your comfort zone continually pushes you. But it actually, what I mean by plays to your strength, because now if you take that back into the classroom, you yourself are experimenting and making yourself uncomfortable so you can relate better to the students. So I'm sure that that spirit translates over. I hope so. I mean, I I always let them, and I'm very transparent. I'm like, we're going to do something now. This might be a total disaster. And sometimes it is a total disaster. Um, I had a CSPO class where they wanted to create products for Batman and it sounded really awesome and it, it was awful. I mean, it just totally didn't work and these people have paid a lot of money. So how do you, you know, you've got to make sure they still get a valuable experience out of that. But I think it is important one to put me in a position where I'm at much at risk as they are, but also in terms of teaching them that failure is an okay thing. And if you're going to work in agile, you've got to be open to taking chances and letting yourself fail. I start thinking about the agile movement or, you know, I used to call it the agile revolution, but the agile movement, and you're at that ground floor of the, of the agile movement, meaning is you talk to students, you know, virtually every day when you're teaching your classes. So you're hearing all these stories, plus you're a public figure because you blog, because you tweet, because you podcast and speak at events. Um, all of that information that comes back to you, particularly where you're, um, you know, you have a PMI and kind of waterfall background. So you have, a, you have a, a kind of a view to the past. Where do you see Agile today and where is it going next? First, to, to back up a little bit, like you said, you think of it as a movement or a revolution. I think of Agile as a virus that has been introduced into a system to kill off something more poison than itself. So if waterfall is a terminal disease, agile is the virus that's trying to take root. And that's why the change stuff is so hard. Um, I think I'm surprised that bimodal hasn't become bigger, faster. I really thought that that was going to become like crack 
for everybody. Um, the idea of changing your organization so that you can have traditional and you can have agile side by side as long as you first have to change your traditional model. So it's it's a lot harder than just switching to agile. But I really thought, and I'm still kind of expecting that to become a much bigger deal. Um, I'm surprised that it hasn't. I, I feel like in a lot of with a lot of the people that I interview, there tends there it seems to be more of a movement towards less um, attachment to what type of agile you're using or what kind of language you're using. There's still a lot of people trying to figure out the portfolio. Like I think safe is is great, and I think less is great, and I think dad is great, and I think that each of those is probably not the final answer. Those are the steps that are going to get us to the next answer. Pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, or it's along the growth path, right? So as um, these things continue to evolve, I'm sort of expecting that that separation between Agile and Waterfall is going to kind of dissolve a little bit more. Um, I think the bigger problem is going to be helping the business world get past like the the notion that multitasking will work or that, you know, treating people like they're in a factory. Um, I think I talked to somebody not that long ago who said he thought it was going to take an entire generation to pass before that was going to be out of this, out of the system. So I don't know, but I'd like to see that change a little bit more, a lot more on the focus on the human side of things. I mean, it may take a generation, but at the same time, if you think about it, agile, has been around for almost 20 years, and that's more than a generation. So we're probably getting to that point. And um, one of the other things I'd like to hear your perspective on, because you have such a unique and interesting perspective, is in the same notion as where do you see Agile outside of IT moving forward? Within my home, like my my daughter and my wife, my kids homeschool, and they use Agile, they use Kanban to do all their schoolwork. Um, I've taught Scrum to Girl Scouts, and they used the girls in the troop used it to get their gold award, which is the equivalent Girl Scout equivalent of an Eagle Scout. Um, I know a lot of people using it at home um, and in their marriages, which I think is a pretty cool thing, um, a great way of practicing the stuff and bringing some of the transparency and things like that um, into the home, I think is a really great thing. It, it helps kind of immunize your kids against the waterfall. The, the cool thing about teaching young people is you don't have to help them unlearn everything that, that waterfalls already taught them. They already are agile. So there's less resistance and they just kind of take to each other. Um, so I think that's a really cool thing. Um, there's a lot, I talked to, I did an interview this morning with um, a coworker of mine who is using agile on a project where they're redesigning hotel rooms. So there's no software involved. Um, and I think that that kind of stuff is really amazing. It seems like it keeps finding ways into other parts of the business world, um, which is great. I think on the downside, uh, the terminology gets muddled quite a bit. Um, and that's that's always concerning, but it is what it is. So I think the more it gets used in schools, you know, stuff like what John Miller is doing, I think that's great. Um, the more we can teach it to the kids, the better off the future is going to be. I'm a new parent. I have a four-month-old at home. And a buddy of mine from Australia has two kids, about maybe 10 and 7. And he was at our house for dinner. And he started talking about how he uses Agile to manage the family. And they have a family meeting. And one of, the, one of his daughters runs the family meeting, the stand-up, and not, not even him. And then he whipped out on his iPad the family Trello board. Like It was just absolutely fascinating. So I, it definitely resonates well with me, what you were saying. 
Yeah, we do that in our house. And we taught Scrum to Katie when she was five, and we used uh, Banana Scrum back at the time to plan our family vacation. Um, so that was it's a really cool way to get used to it. And like when I wanted to learn about Kanban, I didn't have a Kanban project. So I started trying to do personal Kanban to get more stuff done. There's lots of ways that you can get, I think, adjusted to the habits um, without having to do it at work. Um, and just for anybody who's listening who does decide to do it at home, if you're the husband, you're not the product owner. You're the team. Just so you're clear on that. We have kind of a similar situation in my house as well. You know, I've I've got four kids and we do homeschooling and my wife is definitely the product owner. I'm, I'm more like the scrum master and, and the kids are kind of like the delivery team. Well, actually, I know one guy who does retrospectives with his wife on their marriage. And that is something I find the thought of that to be absolutely terrifying. But, um, you know, I think there's a limit to transparency. But if it works for them, that's awesome. You know, everybody's got to find their own way. I don't need my wife commenting more about like my farting and my snoring. Exactly. It's not an impediment. It has to get out. (laughs) That's hilarious. So, Dave, what does the future hold for you throughout the rest of 2016 and into 2017? Uh, I'm going to eat lunch. And then um, in a week, I'm going to Orlando for the Scrum Gathering. Where I guess, This will probably, I guess, air after that. But I will have presented the new version of the Personal Agility Canvas, which I'm very excited about. Let's see. Other than that, just lots of teaching and lots of interviews, lots of podcasts. So that's that's pretty much it. I don't I don't really have too much beyond that. I'm just trying to teach as many people as I can, help them dig their head out of the waterfall. Well, thank you for the insightful conversation and for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Next week on Agile Next, we have certified Scrum trainer, Agile coach, and latest addition to Scrum Alliance board, Zuzi Shohova. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv. 